Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to a special edition of Bloomberg Business of Sports. I'm Jason Kelly. Toto Wolff has emerged as one of the most successful and fascinating figures in the world of sports, leading the record-setting Mercedes Formula One racing team on an unprecedented run over the past decade. All that winning, it coincided with the sport itself exploding onto the American scene, courtesy of a couple things. First, the Netflix show Drive to Survive, and also a decision by F1 owner Liberty Media the U.S.-based telecom giant, to hold more Grand Prix on U.S. soil. That's made Toto famous in his own right. He elicits shouts of recognition as he trots the globe. His management of Mercedes even inspired a 2022 Harvard Business School case study written by a professor who's also chronicled everyone from LeBron James to Beyonce. This latest F1 season has taken a different turn for Mercedes. The team broke its own winning streak, losing both the team and drivers' championships to arch-rival Red Bull. Now, Toto and his playbook face the ultimate test, getting back to winning. For the latest episode of our Business of Sports docuseries, I spent some time with Toto across a couple continents. On the Austin F1 track, on the actual track, he was driving really fast. In Monaco, where he lives with his wife, Susie, she herself is a former race car driver, and finally at his office at the Mercedes factory in England. And that's where this conversation takes place. After a tour of the sprawling campus, we sat down for a wide-ranging chat about his background, his management strategy, and how finally losing may be the best thing that's happened to his team. Check it out. Tell me the state of the sport right now. Formula One, how would you describe it? Right now, I think we, a live entertainment Sports, honest sport, is something that is uh, generally a robust value proposition at the moment. As from a stakeholder's point of view, we are increasing our audiences, live audiences, and also TV and uh, social media strongly. So at that stage, uh, you never know what could happen in a few years down the line. Uh, in that's in, at that stage, uh, the sport is really growing well. Where is it versus where it was when you joined Mercedes? When I joined Mercedes in 2013, the sport had four years of Sebastian Vettel championships and there wasn't any challenger in sight. And then uh, we eventually took over and the new engines were introduced and uh, the previous regime of shareholders in Formula One didn't really understand what, what it was all about, about hybrid. And, and I think it kind of accelerated over the next years with younger drivers coming in that uh, social media was being made available for them before they weren't, they weren't able to broadcast out of the paddock. And since then, they have attracted massive new audiences. The fight between Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen was really interesting. Netflix contributed to the business that uh, people got to know the personalities beyond the superstars. And all of that is, is very new. And I must really say that with Liberty coming in, that's when uh, 
although we were skeptical at the beginning, that's where we really started to have this massive upswing. And together with the governing body, the FIA, we were able to put on a show during COVID um, as the only global sport, and it obviously helped a lot. In getting to know you a little bit, I, I found you to be a, a student of sports and business, sort of this nexus that we that we like to talk about. As someone who does, you know, you study valuations, you study deals, you study other ownership groups and and managers. How do you fit F1 into that broader context? Formula One is very different. With us, it's very different because we have two drivers and a competition within the team. So it's not like you're having 10 or 20 players out there on the field that buy into that common common objective. So you have a, a base of 2,000 people that that are the team and uh, including the two drivers. So there is a dynamic that is very different that we have to also manage internally. We are global and I think we, we are racing global. So no other sport really, really does that. And the business side is also multinational. Our income streams come from various promoters in the diff- on the different continents. Um, sponsorship is international and TV is international. So we may be missing out on huge deals in a single territory like the, U- the US market, but uh, we, are, we are monetizing on all the other markets because the sport is so interesting there. And so when you look at the NFL or the Premier League, I mean, what do you take from those other sports? What have you adopted either for the team or, or what have you seen be adopted as Liberty has, has sort of, as you say, accelerated this business? Various league have, leagues have various strengths. There's a lot we can learn from the U.S. American sports leagues and sports franchises. With the salary caps coming in 10 or 15 years ago, those franchises turned into profitable businesses and became legitimate business. And Formula One took until last year to kind of embrace that model. So the professionalism in, in, in marketing, in growing the various business fields beyond just the sponsorship um, to ticketing, to commercial or real estate income streams is something that is not an area we are really knowledgeable marketing, licensing rights, they are much bigger. My belief is that we can learn from from everybody. There are things that the Premier League does really well. So I think you need to be open-minded, have your eyes open. And so tell me more about what that cost cap has meant for you as the manager of this business, as as the principal. Well, there's obviously there were two hearts within me. From a pure competition standpoint, we knew that between Ferrari, Red Bull and ourselves, we had deep pockets to fund performance and we continued to outspend each other. So in a way, you know that your only competitors is going to be the team with the teams with big funding. But on the other side, our businesses were at best break even. And with a cost cap coming in, that means limiting the amount of spend in technical areas, we turned our business case and I'm benefiting from that as a shareholder uh, into a very profitable franchise. So on one hand, I'd like to have kept the margin to all the other teams. On the other side, this is run now not only based on extracting a millisecond relative to Ferrari, um, no matter what it costs, but as a real business. You touched on something that I think is really important and I've thought a lot about and you and I have talked about it a little bit, which is this I think, unique role that, that you hold as a 
sizable owner of this business and also the manager of it. You know, you think about other CEOs and certainly CEOs in sports or owners in sports, they don't have those two hearts. They don't have those two hats, uh, as it were. What have you learned from that? And how do you reconcile it? It's maybe even different because the hats that I'm wearing is the shareholder's hat and I'm in the board of directors. The chief executive's hat running the place with all the various business aspects. And I'm also the trainer. That isn't something that happens to happen in, in other sports leagues or even in Formula One. But I feel very privileged of being able to do these, have these various hats. And until now, it has functioned okay. But we have to see whether us as a company growing strongly, we are beyond 2,000 people now, uh, whether I can maintain these positions or whether there's somebody that will take over for me eventually. Which brings us nicely to, to the present moment. This is not an easy year. There's a streak that will likely be, be broken in a few months. What's the state of this team? We have won and we were lucky to win eight consecutive championships, world championships, which wasn't done in any sport before. And there were some years that were difficult. Uh, winning against Ferraris in their heydays in 2018 and 19 was not easy. Last year against Red Bull, obviously we lost the driver championship, but we won the constructor championship. We knew that a winning streak eventually will come to an end. That's just the probability of it all. And you could even argue that it wouldn't be great for the sports if we would win 20 in a row. Now, having said that, our ambition is to win every single one. But in our sport, it's about physics and not mystics. We got it wrong with the physics this year. And it is about now, how can we, how can we recover? And we have prepared for that moment. And we have to just live by our values that we set ourselves and regain land against our main competitor. And that's not easy. And so how do you motivate a team, some of whom I think you told me a few months ago, there's a substantial number of people who work for this company who've never lost. Yeah, we just looked at the stats today from the population of 1,000 here on the chassis side. So we have these two factories, chassis and engine. There is 270 people that have been here less than a year. So that's, that's big. And in an age group of 26, 26 to 35, also very young. And I see that as a as a real opportunity for us because all of these people have been here when they saw how good it was going and now how difficult, difficult it can be. And that's going to be an important learning from them also in the future. You will not take it for granted that winning a championship is easy. And many of us that have been here six or seven years haven't lost a single championship. So I believe there is always something good in getting it wrong, even though it feels difficult when it happens. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You know, one of the interesting challenges, to say the least, is managing in a world where data say one thing, 
but maybe you see or feel another. How do you reconcile that? I mean, you're a very smart person, but there are, you know, PhDs who are probably telling you you're wrong and you're telling them that, like, how does that, how do you work through that? I love the sport. And, you know, I mentioned that to you, the, or the honesty of the stopwatch and, uh, whether you are a PhD or, or just a manager without a doctorate, you see the result. And uh, you can argue, well, we think the data are correct, but they don't correlate with the track. So why is that? So you need to remind yourself that this is physics. You know, where did we get it wrong? And why did we get it wrong? And of course, we keep arguing with each other, but it's the mix between the data and the common sense approach that will give the best result. And I enjoy these conversations, even when they can be heated at times, because we have our different perceptions and perspectives. But at the end, the joint target, the joint objective is so massive that we just need to remind ourselves in these moments that we just want the same. We're just seeing the solution somewhere else. So we just need to get together and say, what is it that we want to do? And at the end, the data are important to develop a quick car, but data don't make decisions. Humans right. do. Humans make decisions and humans drive cars and humans help those people drive cars. How do you manage the humans in a moment where the physics isn't going your way? An engineer tends to say, well, this is what the data is showing me. And the driver in the car says, well, that's not what I'm feeling. And so you need to find a compromise. But the most valuable and also the most expensive sensor sits in the car. And if the driver feels something that is very different to what the data suggests, you got to think of why that is. And you will, over time, find some correlation. This is why also there the interaction between human and the, the data is what makes this sport so interesting. The best driver couldn't do with the best car. The best car couldn't do without the best driver. You mentioned something a, a few minutes ago that I wanted to come back to, and, and you reminded me of just then, which is this notion that the sport is also unique in that you have two driver two drivers who, depending on the situation, are competing or collaborating sometimes within the same race and certainly within the same season. You know, you had a situation last season where you had to tell one of your drivers to let the other driver go ahead. I mean, that's a very unique way of running a business to some extent. It gives it another dimension that you have this rivalry that can be very healthy and understandable because your first competitor is the, your teammate in the same car that you need to channel in a positive way for the team. So making them collaborate in order to develop a car can have a positive impact. On the other side, we've seen it in the past, if the two drivers start to spill the beans or get too, you know, hostile with each other, hiding games start, you don't release the data, or even worse, the wrong one, you try to mislead the other driver, you, you try to gain an advantage, and that can be negative for the team. So it's my role and of my colleagues to actually make sure that this is always well-conditioned. You mentioned Netflix, and we probably all dwell on it a little too much, but it has had an accelerating effect on the sport. It's also had the effect of making a lot of people know who you are <laughs> that probably didn't know who you were, but before. Um, I had a, an observer tell me that people pay more attention to you than many of the other drivers and certainly many of the other owners and team principals. Why do you think that is? Formula One was always under the spotlight. And I think that even before Netflix, there were 
personalities that got greater coverage than others. I'm trying to stay authentic to how I am and my behaviors haven't changed um, whether a camera is pointed at me or not. And I know exactly how fast the wheel turn. I'm there today and I uh, have those rec this recognition because I'm part of running a team. If I were to step back, that is gone within a day. And um, I take it with a, a pinch of salt, but it doesn't give you m more than just a better table in a restaurant. Obviously, a lot of people watched you in, in real time and then once again over the summer, you know, go through an excruciating moment at, at the end of the last season. You haven't talked a lot about it. Will you talk about it? Like, ha have you processed that moment? I, I have tried to process that moment. Um, I have rarely had in my life since my childhood moments where I felt an inability of being in control of a situation. And when it came towards the end of the race, it was clear from the get-go, the better, the better driver wins, the better car wins. And that was great. And if the other driver would have outperformed Lewis, it would have been okay. We would have been disappointed, but we knew what it was. Lewis outperformed uh, Max on that particular day. And then you can say, well, what about the rest of the season? Doesn't matter. We came there, equal points. Outperformed the other, dri um, the other driver. And then someone decided to freestyle a bit with the regulations. And from within five laps of having won the race, unless you break down, it's been taken away. And that moment for me was almost like a childhood trauma of what's happening. I'm not in control of this. I didn't know what was happening in the background and all the lobbying. Fair use to them. But when someone just in a sport that I love so much because of its integrity and fairness and honesty breaks all these rules. It was just, um, it was a shock at the time. And so how do you take that forward? How do you process it to a point where you can keep going? I think the FIA, this is the governing body, realized that there was some responsibility um, and they executed it. But it is, you know, that's in the history books that the title, Lewis's title is gone. There's nothing we can change about it. And it's not causing us any sleepless nights anymore. It's just when you reflect about it in hindsight, you say, well, that should have been Lewis's eighth title. That would have made him the greatest driver of all times. It didn't happen, but everything has a reason. Let's see long, long term. We're looking at not one race or one year, three, five, 10 years perspective. And how do you take that perspective? And, and what do you see when you look around the proverbial corner for this team, for this sport? I think the excitement that we provided last year is still in people's minds. Um, this year and, and the years to come, we still have uh, the same rivalries, interesting driver personalities, the sports growing in the US. And I feel we are, we're in a good place. But I all the time try to make up scenarios that would actually hit the sport. You know, finishing Max Verstappen winning a championship in October wouldn't be great for the November races, but it is what it is. If he wins, he wins it on merit. So there is factors which have, have, have an influence, but I think people enjoy the entertainment that's provided. And you mentioned the U.S., which is obviously a fascinating topic for many people because 
you have Austin. We spent some time in Austin together. That's been a successful Grand Prix, especially of late. It's been, I believe, 400,000 people there last year. Miami comes on the scene next year, Vegas. What does that expansion do for the business of F1? And how long does that expansion last? We are, we are racing on all continents bar um, Africa. And I think it's not long that we'll be, we'll be racing in, um, in South, South Africa. We've been in Austin for a, for a long time and they've done a fantastic job there in, in accommodating us. But last year dwarfed everything that was before that. And you mentioned the numbers. And then we went to Miami and Stephen Ross and uh, Tom Garfinkel have made a, have done a great job. It was, in a way, a better test of Formula One in Miami, but it it was great. Lots of learnings to improve things for next year, but it was very good. And then we are adding another one with Las Vegas at a very different format in the night. And I feel we're in a good place in having three races in the US, one in Mexico and one in Brazil. It gives us a good footprint in the Americas um, beyond uh, Europe, Australia, Asia, uh, and it makes it, uh, justifies it as a global sport. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. The success obviously has people knocking on the door, whether they're sponsors or whether they're manufacturers or whether they're people who want their own teams. What's your view? Let, let's start. Sponsors, that's great. Audi coming in, Porsche potentially coming in, although that hasn't been officially announced. What does that do for the sport? We're in a great situation that we have major luxury OEMs that are part of the sport with Mercedes, Ferrari, Aston Martin, hopefully Porsche, Audi, um, Alpine. So on top of that, the traditional Formula One brands like McLaren and Williams, and that's a credible franchise rooster. And I believe that is with the credibility of all these great companies on top of Red Bull, um, global organization and market leader in their field. I think we have the robustness of uh, strong stakeholders that are also capable to invest marketing dollar in the activation, not only at the track, but globally. And that is so important that we multiply every dollar that's invested into the team by four or five or six times in activation worldwide. And so that's with the current footprint. <laughs> Got other people knocking on the door, Andretti specifically, wanting you to up the number of teams. I believe it's fair to say you publicly, certainly privately, <laughs> from what people have said, are not in favor of that. What is the scenario in which you think that could happen? Mario and Michael Andretti have a such a strong name and history in motor racing. So to be well understood here is we are 10 franchises. The FIA has the, has the right to grant two more. It is in the governance of the sport that they can decide that whether they do it. If they decide so, that 11th team has to pay a, an entry fee of $200 million. And then basically, instead of 
dividing the EBITDA formula on by 10 teams. It's being divided by 11. So what I said is, what is the contribution to a team coming in in terms of growing the EBITDA of the sport? And how much is that team prepared, like us as OEMs, to multiply their investment into a team for activation to make us more popular worldwide? And these are the data that I thought would be interesting to jointly analyze. And then it is up to the FIA to make a decision whether they want to grant another entry. Personally, I think you need to buy a team like in any other sports, unless all the teams agree that it is really a creative for the business. And I would love to be convinced, as do my fellow team principals or shareholders in the other teams, to say, okay, that is something that is really that the sport and all of us would benefit from. And we haven't been able to carve that yet out, be it for Andretti or any other group of potential um, new team owners. And when you think about the the valuation growth, I mean, I think you and others have said that, you know, during your tenure, the you know, this team has doubled in, in value. Does that growth rate continue? Like we've seen astronomical valuation growth in the NFL, you know, whether it's with the Broncos in English Premier League with Chelsea of late, those those two sales have set a new bar in many ways. How do you think about valuation when it comes to F1? My background is um, finance, and I believe in conservative, real money world. So you have EBITDA multiples, operating income multiples, DCF uh, method of calculating future cash flows. Some industries, because of a lack of the previous ones, have revenue multiples. And teams like the Broncos went for eight or nine times revenue. So in our case, we are a profitable business. We are growing. There is good predictability in our income streams in the future because uh, promotion deals with racetracks, TV contracts, and sponsorship deals are usually agreed for a period between three and 10 years in our industry. So we know what our cash flows are going to be going forward. We know what our costs are because we're limited by the cost cap. So it's a pretty attractive business case. Now, on top of that, there is a scarcity of the franchises. None of them are uh, for offer. So potential owners, uh, like with the Denver Broncos, are prepared to, val- um, to pay high valuations for, for a trophy asset, but not only because it's a trophy, because it's just scarce inventory. So for us, it's just paper value because we don't want to sell the business. The returns on the money invested are positive. So whatever you make up in valuations. And do you think they will continue? I mean, do you have confidence in the, in the, in the growth of valuations of F1? What, what gets in the way of it? Well, uh, COVID times 10 would obviously harm all industries in the world. And uh, black swans are just around the corner. So, you know, even if I don't have anything on the radar that could harm the sport, there might be something. But at the moment, um, you look at F1 itself and the team, like I said to you before, the income streams are predictable. If we go to Las Vegas or whatever it is, we know what we are going to earn from the race promotion fee over the next five years. That is the length of the contract. Or TV deals are usually done between three and God knows five years. So we know what the next three to five years our our income looks like. And we also know our costs. So that makes it an attractive business model. Like I said before, I'm just repeating myself. (laughs) And what do you think about for you? You turned 50 this year. What's your ambition? What's the ambition for Toto? Well, I was um, 
uh, racing driver turned finance person came back as a team owner and, um, and team manager. And this is what I enjoy doing at the moment. But I feel like with any other position around here is when you realize that you are becoming from great to good, it's important to hand over the baton. This is not some kind of family legacy thing where I would like my son or my daughter to take over. They should very much embark on their own things. It is, I have a wife that understands the business profoundly and we believe that we can still contribute to the team. So this is our team ownership that will not change. We are not going to sell the team um, because we believe in the sports and we understand what we do, or at least we think we understand. My place is here and that's going to be for the foreseeable future. Is this year, despite all its challenges, still fun? Do you have fun doing this or does it feel less fun in 2022? It has felt less fun also in the years before where, where we struggled, where it was difficult. But I can tell you at the end, it's, it's sports and it's a business. There's so much more relevant things that happen in the world and in the family um, that all the difficult moments the, for the team are just not even moving the needle for me in terms of not enjoyable. We are very lucky that we are in this industry. And how has it changed? How has this year changed if it has, or what has it taught you about your business philosophy? We knew that at a certain stage that winning streak is going to end. And we, we discussed a lot, what are we going to do? How are we going to keep the integrity of the team together, still live to the standard of a no blame culture, empowerment, whilst every bone in your body tells you, can I really trust because the engineering hasn't delivered the results? And I think that's not trivial. We wrote it all down and uh, we knew how to behave. But when it's the fifth time in a row and you're finishing second or third rather than winning, these things, these negative emotions still kick in. So I was asked a lot about the journey until now with the eight consecutive titles. And I will enjoy even more talking about this year, how our behaviors and values stayed intact or not during a year that we weren't really good on track. So, or not good enough because we're still respectable second or third out of 10 teams. But in any case, I this is a life proof of what I was preaching is actually viable. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Toto Wolf. I'm grateful to him and the team over at Mercedes for making it all possible. Do check out the full documentary. It includes those scenes from Austin and Monaco. You can find that at Bloomberg.com or via YouTube. My thanks also to Tom Connors and Kathy Glantz. They produced the documentary and to Stacey Wong, who produced this podcast. I'm Jason Kelly. We've got more great stuff coming up for you. Be on the lookout for another intimate conversation with a key owner in the sports world, Jeffrey Lurie of the NFL-leading Philadelphia Eagles. That will drop in just a couple weeks. Until then, thanks for listening. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.